The Free for All Roundtable. Round one. Jerry Agar in for John Moore today and joining me on round one, Tim Hudak, former leader of the Ontario Conservatives, now with the Ontario Real Estate Association, Power Group Communications and hosted the old show, Laura Babcock and Mark Warner, international trade lawyer. Good morning to all of you. Let's start with this. Undercover agents were sent in by Ontario's Auditor General to casinos in Ontario. They were given some money and what they did is go in, buy chips with the money, gamble a very little, maybe a couple of pulls on a on a slot machine or something, and then they took their chips and cashed them all back in for cash. The idea is that they would look like people who were trying to launder money, take the illegal money, buy chips, and then go out with uh, different dollars. So they got caught, Laura. This looks like a success. <laughs> Um, well, they did get caught, and uh, I'm I'm personally glad that the auditor is checking on this, right? That making sure that these casinos aren't being used to launder cash for illegal reasons. Uh, so yeah, they went out, they they did their thing, they got caught and got the industry talking. You know, I, I think it's good to know that there's oversight happening in our gaming industry. All right. So Mark Werner, as a lawyer, do you have any concern here that it was kind of a sting operation, or do you think this was job well done? No, I, I thought the, the part of the article that I reacted to was I think it said that such it said that dirty money can be washed, but it said such occurrences are rare in Canada, where casinos are highly regulated by government. And I thought, what planet was the person who wrote this story written on? We just had a huge report in British Columbia about money laundering out there. A lot of it casino based, a lot of it from high rolling gambling types who come in from China. So much so that they were actually faking the toonies and using them in casinos out there. So there's a massive problem. But once again, when it comes to money laundering this country, there's this sort of weird denial that uh, so this is a step in the right direction. Well, the person who wrote that is Robert Benzie. We'll check on what planet he's on when he joins me at 810. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll find out. But uh, Tim Hudak, what's your thought on this story? Well, it reinforces the house always eventually wins, Jerry. Those beautiful yeah. casinos are not built on money from uh, winners, uh, after all. Uh, I want to back, back up Mark's point. There, there's been some recent evidence, uh, serious evidence, about the amount of money laundering coming into Canada, primarily through our casino. Oh. In, in Russia, they call it... They call it snow washing, where they're investing money into real estate illegally uh, into Canada. So I'm glad to see the government cracking down on this in casinos. They should now turn to housing. Yeah, we should make sure we understand if anybody's buying a property that they are law-abiding, following the rules. Canadians have first dibs, not the son or daughter or nephew or niece of a drug lord from, from South America. There's ways to do that, so keep up the good work. All right. Now, Ford to appeal after the court strikes down the provincial bill limiting public sector wages. Let's go to the lawyer. Mark, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised that they're appealing. Um, I, I think that a, a lot of lawyers would say that that is a, that decision, the Supreme Court decision written by Justice Abella out of a case arising from Saskatchewan was really wrongly decided or poorly decided. I'm not talking about the actual outcome of the decision. Just the reasoning was bizarre. This sort of way that Justice Abella had of sort of 
intuiting her feelings and creating law based on her feelings as opposed to something that you can see well i'm going to go through this case or that case i'm going to distinguish it make sense of it so my feeling is that these cases you know if they stand and the supreme court can't find a way to correct them then we're going to see more and more provinces using the notwithstanding clause or attempted to use the notwithstanding clause when it comes to that particular uh, decision so um appeal it if you want but i think uh um, you know, even if they're, they're likely to lose it based on the Supreme Court decision. So it seems to me we know where this will go. Well, Laura, that's what Gavin Tai, who's another Toronto lawyer, said earlier this morning, that uh, there seems to be a feeling from the legal community, at least the two representatives we're talking to here, that ultimately this is not going to be uh, a loss for the government. And uh, this is a government that is willing to fight an increase in expense. Yeah, and it's our money, of course, being spent in these court cases when the government does these things. I want everybody to remember that. Uh, when the government cries that they've got no money for this, that, or the other thing, it's about priorities. They spend plenty of money on the things that they want to fight. And, you know, it's, it sounds like a trope now. Elections have consequences. But I couldn't help but listen to, you know, Gavin go through Ford's government's willingness to fight on this issue, on this 1%, and Merritt Stiles talking to you, Jerry, about how she wants Ontario to go back to a place where people are cared for. I mean, we're in a very combative climate, um, and there's a lot going on that this government's willing to do to push Ontarians. And I do think there's a risk of the notwithstanding clause being used casually to force decisions on people. These kinds of negotiations should happen at the table. They should both walk in with their wat on their botna. They should decide, you know, uh, worst against or best against negotiated agreement, and they should figure out what percentage of raises these people should get. Um, I well, hate they the did. Fact. They decided it was one percent. That's why they right. put it in place. <laughs> my point is 1% is ridiculous and anybody who's uh. fair-minded knows that and yes it's going to cost <laughs> the government a ton of money but the Ford government uh, underspends on certain areas that needs investment and it's willing to spend on other things that a lot of people don't see as valuable so the point is this get to the polls next election and vote for the kind of Ontario you want so we're not tied up in the courts fighting workers from getting fair increases okay man but we just did that, that one for thing sakes, Laura we just had an election and a huge resounding majority for the Ford government and broad-based support for us saying, hey, I'm falling behind and the life's getting more expensive for me and I don't want to see bigger tax increases go to the public sector workers. Like this notion, Jerry, the public sector workers are impoverished. Job for job, you compare what they get to those in the private sector, the benefits, the job security, it's not even close when it comes to the public sector. The government should have the right to say, hey, the taxpayer can't afford to pay more and bring in a wage freeze or a 1% increase or whatever makes sense at the time. This is a judge who would rather be a legislature. legislature from the bench. I hope the Supreme Court overrules it because governments need to control spending. All right, and now. Jim, I will agree. We did have a big election, but we had a very low uh, voter turnout compared to... That doesn't to, matter. Well, but it does matter to me going forward, Well, it right? doesn't like, matter. Got, you get we, the result you get. Sounds a bit like Trump there, Laura. I'm an advocate. What kind of ridiculous You said about Trump. You're advocate. saying the election didn't count. No, it did matter. It absolutely <laughs> mattered. You're saying Jim, it didn't count. I did count. What I'm saying is the next election, people learn from this. Get out and vote. Don't sit on the sidelines because it's a nice June day and let an election come in where you get a government that you don't think represents the values of the province and the values of the workers and the healthcare workers and the environment and everything else. Next election, let's elect, get more people to the polls and elect for a better Ontario. We're stuck with this government. I get it. I acknowledge the election happened. I just wish we had more people voting so that when governments get and we have a sense that they really represent more people in the province, the majority of people. We need more voter engagement. 
All right, but but Tim points out something, Laura. That is. Jerry, uh, can I just add one quick point? Yeah, on that, give me a second here, and then I'll right. come back to you. Okay, this the the unions sure. have been disingenuous in trying to tell us that people who work for the government are impoverished, and they'll find the lowest paid part time person and act like that's what people in government get paid. And it's not true. Uh, having a government job is generally much better than most other jobs, and you can retire and live longer on uh, on your benefits than the amount of time you spent working. Go ahead, Mark. You're, you know. I have my own business. Yeah. I don't have those kind of benefits. I get what you're saying. I'm also saying 1% increase, really? That's where they, that's the line they, they stopped on? Come on. Yeah, the one point I wanted to come in on is, and I think that if, you know, it's, it's pointy headed about it, but if you were to go back to the decision, it was a 5 2 decision and a very, very sharply written dissent by two um, of Justices uh, Wagner, who's now the Chief Justice, and Justice Maldaver, who's just retired. And what they pointed out is that what was so strange in the Abella majority decision is it said, that there is no really getting back to the negotiating table. Once you take this off the table as a remedy for governments, you put all of the bargaining power on the hands of the workers. And it's pretty much impossible to negotiate a public sector contract with this kind of a rule. That's the problem with it. And that's why I think we're going to head to notwithstanding clause. You just can't, you can't work under what the Supreme Court has done. CRA is, says they are clawing back $3.2 billion from 825,000 suspect COVID-19 aid applications. I look at this and I think we knew right from the get-go, and in fact we talked about it on the radio, that this program was put in place so quickly, and it had to be, that there were going to be problems. They made mistakes. They had two different places, the CRA and Service Canada, that you could apply through. So some people picked up on that and applied and double-dipped and all that kind of stuff. It looks to me, Tim, like I think if you can show, if the CRA can show that somebody just flat-out perpetrated fraud, then get the money back from them and, and put a penalty on them. But I think a lot of people may have gotten a dollar or two that they shouldn't have because they didn't understand how it worked. They thought they would do the money. I, don't, I think it would hurt those people to go say, give us four thousand dollars back then exercise good judgment right go after those that scam the systems the fraudulent ones there those that ripped off the government and that means they ripped off the hard-working taxpayer absolutely focus the resources there if there's somebody who made a, a small mistake somebody who's on the you know border being able to pay pay the rent to the mortgage you know i can see that you have a gentler touch on them and focus on the bad actors the bottom line was the government needed to act we were at a yeah, huge risk of the economy falling apart and cratering now you got to clean up the mess but focus on the really bad actors how does it look to you mark you know, I, I guess I, I really hate when people say things like, in hindsight, you know, it's 2020, because we did see this. We did know it was happening. And I think at the time, there were people who suggested that there were alternatives to the to the attestation model that was used here for precisely these reasons. And I'm not convinced that we couldn't have got the money into pockets that needed it more. This is a program design. What the um, PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, said yesterday, I think it's a testimony, is the government is still doing it. I mean, Christopher Freeland was out there defending a new proposal she has um, on, uh, on another wage benefit scheme version of it, which again is based on the attestation model. They're going to follow that and another mortgage thing they're coming up with. So there's a, the issue is there's, there's, there's a political benefit to doing it that way, which is why they did it. And then after the fact, I guess with the new programs that they're going to do it again, we're going to say, oh, hindsight's twenty twenty. No, you got to do it right the first time. Sure. But Laura, I, I think they had to be on the hurry up with the CERB program. If the government throws people out of work, then the government has to help them out and they have to help them out now. And the, on the programs going forward, they can be more careful. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know that none of us want to really put our heads back into those horrible days of March uh, when it felt like the world was falling apart. The government flooded the zone with cash. And when there's a crisis like that, you know, the old adage is there's always an opportunity. And for some opportunists, they saw this and thought, wow, the government's flooding the zone with cash. How many different ways can I get it? Those people should be punished. Those people that should be pursued. The people who got a little bit of cash to get them through, you know, the worst crisis we've had in 100 years, uh, I don't think the government should waste time pursuing the small amounts. Let's make sure that people who literally decided to mess with this crisis and hurt the taxpayers of Canada by taking fraudulent funds, uh, they should be punished fully. All right. So Tim Hudak, two little girls. Did you have the elf on the shelf in your house? The elf uh, shows up on uh, on December 1st. I know certain elves have certain rules when the Christmas tree goes up as one, but this particular elf, Christina, is supposed to show up sometime uh, tonight, Jerry, and the girls are already talking about, where's Christina going to pop up first? The money's on the Christmas tree. All right. Well, there are some people now who are against elf on the shelf because, Laura, they say, oh, it just softens kids up for a surveillance uh, uh, environment in a surveillance nation. I think this is a little hyperbolic. Well, yeah, but it's so creepy. My child wanted it one year, so we did it. And then we thought, ooh, this is so weird, this little creepy elf staring at your kid. And besides, as a parent, I like to be the one who says I get to make the call to Santa, depending on their behavior. I'll be <laughs> reporting to Santa on you. <laughs> <laughs> I want that power, Jerry, not an elf. <laughs> no, they, Santa has that power. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So Yeah, but my kids were convinced I made the final calls. So. All right. Thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.